So uh, going into our first segment, the Fortune Society and five other outside organizations have conducted those programs at Rikers since the early 1990s, which helped people to uh, incarcerated people prepare to have a successful reentry once they are released and support them on a daily basis while they're incarcerated. And that programming, which cost $17 million annually, was the only component cut from the Department of Corrections' $1.2 billion budget during the recent city budget deliberations. People detained on Rikers who have been participating in those classes and services will no longer have that bright spot to look forward to each day while they're held in pretrial detention. And half of the program's workers will have to find new jobs. And the people released from Rikers will now be re-entering society, as we said, with less support, but also fewer skills to hopefully chart a new path. Here to speak about all of this and more is Dr. Ronald Day, Vice President of Programs and Research at the Fortune Society. Dr. Day, welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Hello, Amber. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Day, speak more about the programs. Speak about them in some detail. What was offered each day? So, every day for since like the the 90s or so, um, early 2000s, we've been offering services to people who are currently incarcerated in New York City jails. So we have, we used to call them discharge planners. We recently started calling them group facilitators. They're in the jails on a daily basis. Um, you know, they're specially trained, culturally competent staff who go in, they were going into the jails um, on a variety of different housing units providing services to the incarcerated population. At one point, Amber, we used to be like in areas like the gym or we would be in classrooms, but under the prior administration, what he wanted to do, uh, Mayor de Blasio, is expand the services to people who are incarcerated. So that means we ended up moving to the housing units because we wanted to be able to serve as many people as possible. So now our staff, they were, on the housing units, we were in AMKC, which is the largest facility on Rikers. We were also in BCDC. And we would be offering, like I said, uh, evidence-based uh, services to individuals that were there. We we had, uh, we would do a discharge planning with them. We were offering group sessions with them. We were facilitating any number of different types of groups. We were doing stuff around reducing violence, um, reducing idleness for the for the participants there. We were had hard skills trainers coming inside, doing a variety of different training from we were offering OSHA 30 classes to them. They were doing electrical, plumbing, carpentry, a variety of different types of trainings for the individuals who are incarcerated. And they look forward to us, they look forward to us coming to the groups every day to engage with them doing groups around parenting for individuals who were disconnected from family members, talking to them about writing to their children. We were giving them court letters for their for their continued engagement in the services because we wanted to increase the chances that they could get a favorable outcome in their case. So, you know, we were doing all these different things. We were having family day events with them so their family members could come in and, and support the their, you know, their involvement in the program and see that they were doing something constructive while they were incarcerated. So there's a lot of activities that were associated with the contract that we had uh, 
with the Department of Correction that was recently cut as of um, June 30th. Right. And uh, Dr. Day, uh, can the Department of Correction says that its own employees will start to provide these services. Uh, can you talk about the doubts that uh, the Fortune Society and these other um, outside groups who are providing services that they have about uh, the Department of Corrections capacity to match what y'all were doing? So they have civilian staff that are working in the facilities and they go in and, you know, spend, you know, some, some, a limited amount of time on the housing units working with the participants. But they were saying that they're going to expand the role of the counselors and offering the services that we were offering. We were, we were on the housing units for over an hour. Like I said, doing uh, an, any number of sessions with them. The idea that the civilian staff would be able to cover the housing units and the, doing the groups that we were doing with them, it just, it just made no sense to us. They were not, they, they're not prepared to, to offer these types of sessions. They didn't necessarily have the training. I mean, a lot of our staff were trained to be able to offer these evidence-based evidence-based sessions, um, thinking for a change, um, ready, set, work, all these different trainings that the civilian staff were not trained to do that. And again, they stay up, they stop on the facility, I mean, on the housing unit for maybe 10, 15 minutes and, you know, play games with the participants at times. Our services for them are much more intense, right? We're, we're on the units. We sometimes in the mental health observation units as well. And we are engaging with these. We were engaging with them on, on a fairly regular basis. The, the DOC staff just were not trained to do this. And they just didn't have the, I don't think that they have the cultural competency to be able to deliver the, the services the way that we were. Right. And something really fundamental about the programming was uh, that it was led by many people who had been formerly incarcerated that you was able to um you know, make a strong bonds for that reason with the people that they were serving. So Dr. Day, talk a little bit more about that, but also tell us what you've heard from inside about, uh, the, you know, DOC staff saying that, yeah. you know, yeah. that I mean, I know, that. I know, I know some DOC staff and they told me that this would be a huge undertaking. For them to be able to carry the load that they have as staff, in addition to the new assignments that they would receive for them to be group facilitators. I mean, I mean, they've said they they will try to get, they will try to do this if, if they were asked, you know, to, to cover the groups the way that we were doing it. But they said it's, it's going to be a pretty Herculean task to do it. And, I believe that DOC is trying to get the approval of DC 37, right? The union that represents the civilian staff to be able to, because, you know, you try to expand their, their responsibilities. And I don't know that that was actually approved. That was what DOC was saying when they, when they had the hearing with the city council, but about 40 to 50% of our staff were also directly impacted, right? So they were individuals like myself who have been incarcerated, who've been in, in, in those um, institutions and who have the empathy to be able to work with that particular population 
and then again have transitioned from those places and have been able to make something of ourselves. So it's one thing to work in the facility. It's another thing to have that level of competency to engage with someone in a way where you can empathize with them and you can, you know, be the type of, or provide the type of support that they need, be understanding, non-judgmental, and, you know, provide them with answers, do, do the, we have, we're doing, um, the discharge planning with them. I mean, that is, you know, some of that is still happening now, but we were able to engage them in a way. Some people are 80% of the people who are incarcerated in jails are there without um, convictions. So they, they're waiting for their cases to be adjudicated. Some of them we know are going upstate. So we were able to talk to them about what that experience would be like as well. So there's a lot of stuff that we were able to do that the department would not be able to do. Right. Absolutely. And so the programming, in addition to being, um, you know, a daily activity was pretty successful in linking people to services upon release. And as you said, there was job training. Um, you helped link people to OSHA training, you know, construction training and food prep training. Uh, the horticulture society had uh, was part of the contract as well and they were yeah. training people on you know gardening and that's no longer happening yeah. uh you even helped people find housing upon release now how will the release programs be affected by this so it's being affected in a pretty substantial way because the staff on the contract that was cut were in the jails every day right they were able to establish a relationship with the individuals who were on the housing units and you had maybe 10 15 sometimes 20 individuals participating in group on a daily basis and even if individuals who didn't participate regularly you're able to go and talk to them and say you know i know you're going to be going out soon or i know you're going to court if we can be supportive of you, let us know what we can do. And having those conversations with them were really, um, you know, instrumental. Our staff who were there on a daily basis were able to do a warm handoff to the staff who were coming in from the community, the community-based staff. So, you know, think about it. You have teachers who work with students on a daily basis. You know, it's like they do this every single day. You have someone who's almost like a substitute teacher coming in and, they're there not nearly as often um, working with the individuals. Having the daily presence in the jails and establishing the relationship with those individuals made it a lot easier for us to be able to connect with them, right? And we know from our data that people who engage in our services while they're incarcerated are five, five times more likely to enroll in our services when they come to the community. So that's a huge difference. If we were not working with them in the jail, then the chances are less likely that they would come and engage in our services in the community. And we have very good success with individuals who are coming to our to our programs in the community, giving people care packages, having all these different events that they can participate in. We do a block party this month. We do turkey giveaway on Thanksgiving. We do a Christmas um, school giveaway for people who have children and going back to school soon. We have all these different events and activities. We give them the sense of when they come to the office, we give them a cell phone. Sometimes we even have tablets for them at times. So there's a lot of stuff that we're doing for them, getting them connected to treatment services for those who need it, 
getting them connected to our job training program. A lot of our participants who are incarcerated in the jail are now in either fellowships where they're making money or they're in permanent jobs. So what are the chances that that would have happened had we not had that connection to the one incarcerated? Right. Now, there's uh, been speculation that these uh, funding cuts uh, were a move to get outside eyes and ears out of Rikers as conditions continue to deteriorate and more and more uh, inmates there uh, die uh, uh, in the jail. What do you and other people at Fortune Society uh, think about this this claim or this suspicion? I mean... there seems to be some resonance um, with providers who do this work that you DOC claimed that the cut was going to be not just the providers who were going into the work, but there were also some additional cuts. I ended up finding out from Ombud and through your research that it, it ultimately was only the contracts that were cut that for the providers that are in the that are in the department. So I was really surprised to hear that. So, I mean, that's something that has had resonance with people that the fewer individuals whose eyes and ears are in the facility, that that's less that is going to necessarily be reported. Now, again, I haven't heard that, that directly, but I think that it, that it does make sense in, in many instances. Right. And, and amid this continued chaos and violence at Rikers, the lead federal federal prosecutor in Manhattan actually has announced that uh, they plan to request a court-appointed receiver to take over Rikers. Um, so that is news that we will continue to cover. But in our last couple minutes here, Dr. Day, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about your own background and how that led you to getting involved with the Fortune Society. Well, the Fortune Society does something that our society needs, right? And it's provides services to people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. And we say we're a society that believes in second chances, but oftentimes we erect all of these barriers, no obstacles to people being able to secure uh, gainful employment once they get home, to be able to get um, safe and affordable housing. So I appreciate fortune because we offer um, all these different service areas from education to employment to mental health to treatment services. We have arts related program, anger management, you name it. We're one of the organizations that has the most comprehensive of services. And to me, as someone who's formerly incarcerated, I served 15 to 45 years in New York State Prison, 15 years. And I was on Rikers Island in 1992 when there were over 20,000 people in the facilities. So I come to an organization like Fortune. I've been there almost nine years because we don't just offer services to people. We also do the advocacy, right? And the policy work that's really about changing the society and making it less challenging for people who have been impacted by the system. So I say I try to debunk a lot of myths and stereotypes about people who've been involved in the system. And, you know, about 50% of the people who work at the Fortune Society are also formerly incarcerated or have family members that are incarcerated. So, you know, it's just an honor to do this work and to show individuals that when there are opportunities, that individuals can turn their lives around and make a really significant impact in our society. So, you know, for me, this is a blessing to be able to do this work and to represent those who are coming behind me and to go 
into places like Rikers Island, be an inspiration for others and say we believe in in those individuals. Sometimes even when they when they don't believe in themselves. Right. Well, Dr. Day, you certainly are um, an inspiration to uh, the people that work with you and the people, you know, that are incarcerated, I learned during my research. So thank you again so much for joining us uh, for the Independent News Hour on WBAI, Dr. Ronald Day, Vice President of Programs and Research at the Fortune Society.